From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. In this episode of Forward Thinking, we are delighted to have our colleague Acha Leke as guest presenter. He chats with Ngozi Okonjiwala, who is coming up on her first anniversary of being appointed as Director General of the World Trade Organization. This conversation took place in late December 2021. Janet, I believe you've actually met Dr. Okonjo Walla. Yes, indeed. Before I joined McKinsey, I did some work for Ngozi. I'm sure she won't mind me using her first name because she's incredibly down to earth. But anyway, at the time, she was Nigeria's Minister of Finance, and she led negotiations with the Paris Club that led to 30 billion of debt being eradicated, which I believe was the biggest single debt relief in Africa's history. She was passionate about trying to stamp out corruption. I was privileged to witness her chairing a meeting of the government's anti-corruption committee. And she walks the walk. Great person. What a great insight into our guest. I'm really looking forward to hearing her thoughts about the global economy. So now, over to Acha. Good morning, everybody. I am pleased to be here with Dr. Ngozi Okonjuela. As many of you know, she has more than three decades of experience working as a global finance expert, as an international development professional as well. She's the Director General of the World Trade Organization. Prior to that, she's held many, many uh, leadership positions. She's been the chair of the boards of Gavi. She was twice a finance minister in Nigeria when we worked closely together. She's been the managing director of the World Bank, to name a few. And just recently, I saw on Twitter, congratulations, that she was uh, selected as one of the Financial Times 25 most influential women in the world. So uh, welcome, Enoa, and thank you for being with us. Thank you, Acha. Good to see you. It's been about six months in the role. How's it been so far? It's, uh, I, I think it's one of the most interesting jobs one can be privileged to have, but it's also one of the toughest. Mm. I mean, when you're trying to get 164 representatives of members, ambassadors, uh, to coalesce around an issue, and to move forward negotiations that have been going on for more than two decades. It's pretty tough because countries or members are dug into their positions and getting them to, you know, sort of come out of it and see what's happening in the new world and change tack is not easy. But um, we are getting there. We are struggling with issues of the intellectual property and how to come to an agreement on that uh, waiver for vaccines and therapeutics and diagnostics. We're trying to finish a sustainability-related issue with fishery subsidies, harmful fishery subsidies. So lots of exciting things going on. What has the impact of the crisis been on global trade? You know, we've seen the most uh, visible kind of form of impact on global trade, which is the supply chain issues that we're faced now. So I might, I can start there. I know. I think when the pandemic struck, uh, many investors, many businesses, perhaps decided that there was going to be a long or deep re- recession and pulled back on investment plans. Shipping companies left containers in the wrong places. They didn't know that uh, anything other than a deep recession would follow. And uh, what happened is that with the massive amounts of fiscal stimulus we saw, particularly in the developed countries, particularly in the US, $26 trillion worth of fiscal stimulus and monetary policy easing, money in the pockets of households 
and easing for businesses has led to unprecedented demand for goods. That was also heightened by the digital access to online or digital trading to e-commerce. And so we have a supply-demand mismatch that has led to the kind of supply chain uh, issues that we've seen. But um, let me, so after the initial dip last year in, 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 in global trade, you know, the value of trade declined by more than almost 8%. We've seen an increase, a rebound, based on all these uh, demand issues that I talked about. So we are actually forecasting 10.8% growth in, in merchandise trade mm. this year, 4.7% next year. Mm. Uh, we do see with the new Omicron that uh, fourth quarter numbers, you know, there might be a slowdown. But you've seen for the first time trade is growing faster than GDP. Uh, which it hasn't done for a few years uh, prior to the pandemic. So we've had a seesaw, a volatile, you know, mm -hmm. impact. Mm -hmm. First, you've had a downer in terms of the value of uh, merchandise trade. Then you've seen it, uh, you know, come back, bounding up robustly in spite of the supply chain snafus that we see. But I think starting from next year and based on the trends we are going to see a, a, a slowdown in, in global trade mm. and i guess you know for it begs the question about you know as trade sort of rebounds how do we shape a more more inclusive trade patterns across the across the world are we seeing some of the issues between the wealthy and the less developed countries what's essential what's it going to take to shape the patterns that are much more inclusive so I talked about 10.8% rebound in trade this year, but there's a, a real divergence in that. You see North America and Europe and Asia in particular bounding back strongly. And the rest of the world, South America, uh, uh, Middle East and Africa in particular, uh, slowing down. So you have this K-shaped you know, rebound with some regions at the lower end of the K-shape. So we need to really think about what we need to do to, to have a more inclusive uh, recovery. And if we don't do that, if we continue the patterns we, we, we have now, then I think we are going to see continuing divergence. Now, how what is responsible for this divergence and how do we make the recovery more inclusive? There are two factors. One is the amount of fiscal stimulus and monetary policy easing that economies have been able to do. And the other big factor is access to vaccines. So that's what has been making me say that trade policy is vaccine policy. Kristalina uh, Georgieva says vaccine policy is economic policy. But what we're really trying to say is that if we want a more inclusive recovery, we've got to really sharply reverse the access, the vaccine inequality that we see now. We've got to get more vaccines into developing countries, a situation where 66% of people in rich countries are vaccinated, 3% in low-income countries, 7% in Africa, isn't going to do it. And, um, you know, economically, it's very beneficial. I don't, there's this study that the IMF did showing that if we can vaccinate 40% of uh, people by the end of this year, and 70% by mid next year, will add $9 trillion to the econ world economy by 2025. So there are all kinds of incentives to have a more inclusive recovery. 
And that's really at the WTO, we're trying to see how trade can be part of the solution to the problem. And I think that we trade has been and will be quite instrumental to this recovery. One, in getting vaccines from where and vaccine inputs from where they are made to where they are needed and outputs to where they are needed. Two, in making the external demand of countries that are recovering faster available to those that are not, so that trade can be part of this inclusive and sustainable recovery. Yeah, I was definitely going to talk about vaccines because we've seen that, especially on the continent, but also, like you said, in many other emerging economies, you know, where there's, you know, there's a big gap between what, what is needed first from actually accessing the vaccines and then let alone over, over time even manufacturing them. So what's your sense for, you know, what uh, developing economies, especially maybe in Africa, need to do to start to manufacture our own, you know, we, you know, 25% of vaccines consumed in the world are consumed in Africa, but we only manufacture 1% of these vaccines today. What do we need to do and what role does trade and the WTO have to play in making that happen? Well, I, I think, you know, we should look at things uh, in the short term to solve this inequity. There are short term solutions, of course, and then more medium to longer term ones, which is, has to do with manufacturing. In the shorter term, um, part, WTO is part of this multilateral task force of IMF, World Bank and WHO, WTO, four of us. We are trying to work with vaccine manufacturers to encourage transparency in contracts, swapping of contracts so that COVAX and poor countries can get to the front of the queue whilst richer countries go to the back, like Switzerland just agreed to a swap with COVAX. We are also trying to get more transparency on production numbers and distribution so we can get more to the countries where they are needed. So in the short term, donations, contract swapping uh, uh, and all that is the short term answer. In, in the medium term, we really need to emphasize production in Africa. We've seen uh, how concentrated export of vaccines are. 80% of exports come from 10 countries in the world. And we've seen that politics trumps humanitarian or even economic, uh, economic uh, incentives or issues. When push comes to shove, Politicians, even when they don't really have to, will close the door on either exporting inputs or outputs to prove to their population that they are trying to safeguard them. This is what happened when the U.S. closed the door on some of the inputs going to India for manufacture. Uh, or India closed the door to export of the Serum Institute vaccines to COVAX, most of which was going to Africa. So we have to look at manufacturing. How do we decentralize this? And I think Africa has been doing all of the right things. I have to say, high marks to the region. You've got the president who've been out front really advocating uh, for this. You've got the, the vaccine task force and the, uh, the manufacturing task force of which you're a member. I should say leading light, trying to get manufacturing on the continent and to be financed by the Afrexim Bank, which is part of the, the you know, the source of financing or capital. So I, I think we need to do that. Now, the issue is to encourage the, the vaccine manufacturers to go into partnerships with voluntary licensing, since we are still debating the IEP issue at the WTO. We haven't yet come, unfortunately, come to an answer, but I hope soon. So we need to encourage voluntary licensing. The WTO has been very active in trying to support this manufacturing. What have we done? 
we supply chains are critical to the manufacturer because manufacturing vaccines in particular takes so many components, like 280 for Pfizer and Moderna, for instance, 180 for J&J. Any stoppage of one really blocks the system. And our members are the ones that put in export restrictions and prohibitions that block supply chains. So we've been very active with our monitoring program and our job owning of our members to reduce these restrictions so that goods can flow. So I'm quite proud of what we've done. We've been working closely. We, in fact, on our website, you see some of this work where we've looked in great detail at supply chain bottlenecks for companies and, and, and worked hard to ease those for them. So the other thing is, as we're doing this, we're encouraging them to invest in other countries, especially emerging markets, especially in Africa. So we've been, I think, instrumental in doing that. We've built up some amount of trust with them in doing this work. So I think things are going the right way in Africa. Africans are advocating for this. They're preparing the ground. We need to make sure the red tape, the regulatory systems are in place. Regulatory frameworks are critical to vaccine manufacture. So both the African Medicines Agency, the CDC, all these have to be strengthened and be in place. We also need regulatory systems in individual countries to be in place if they want to attract manufacturing. And of course, we need partnerships. Governments might put in their own money to partner uh, with companies, or we find African private sector that can partner uh, these companies to come in. So I think those are some of the things. We, we, and finally, we need advanced purchase commitments. In other words, for vaccine manufacturers, they need to know that when they manufacture, this is going to be bought because these are not goods that can hang around for a long time. So our countries need to band, band together to provide the volume, the advanced market commitments that are, are needed. No, I love it because as you'll see, as the strategy comes out, all of these elements are actually included in there. So that, that's uh, great news. What do you see as an interplay, right? We talk about growth, but also inclusivity, sustainability. People talk, there's some tensions there, of course. What do you see as an interplay between those three? And, and how do we make this happen in practice? Well, you know, you have a very good, uh, you had a good background paper concept note that spelled out some of these issues. I mean, the bottom line is that, um, you know, growth and, and sustainability and inclusivity need not be, trade. there need not be trade-offs between them. Uh, they need not be antagonistic to each other. That's not to say that they can be perfectly aligned, but really you can have the kind of growth that also is sustainable and is, is equitable. What am I talking about? You know, we've, the, the world has grown very much by burning fossil fuels and having high carbon emissions. We were on a 2.7 carbon emissions degree centigrade, sorry, growth path, burning away fossil fuels prior to the Paris Agreement and so on. We're, we're still not sure we're not on that, but we could still grow by focusing on renewables, which have become so much cheaper, alternative fuels. And at the same time, we can make sure that access to such fuels or such energy, which is very lacking in poor countries, gets into the hands of, the, of poor people. So instead of developing energy systems, to, to give access to electricity to people in poor countries. Why don't we think of, you know, funding renewables to help 
them get access to this solar panels, you know, some of the things you said in your paper, you know, these are very pertinent. So I really see a congruence between sustainable growth and equitable growth, that they are not, they are not opposed to each other. Uh, now, to be able to do that, you need to be mindful of what would be a just transition that people talk about mm. if we are to move to a sustainable growth path. You know, this build back better slogan, if you think about it, it really means a lot. If we're recovering from this pandemic, we don't want to do it and go back to the trajectory we were on before as a world. We need to be on another trajectory. To get there for the developing countries, you need financing in practical terms. And this is one of the things that was not so, was a little disappointing at COP26. Still not being able to come up with that $100 billion a year that the rich countries pledged to finance a just transition for the poor ones. That was disappointing. That's what we need to do, Acha. We need to make sure that we have financing so these countries can move. It's not going to happen with a miracle. And they don't have the fiscal space to be able right. to do all of that. A lot of the, the in inequality that uh, occurs in the world is also due to technology. And mm. not uh, uh, a lot of people pay attention to the fact that part of the dislocation, particularly in rich countries, you have poor people increasingly vocal in rich countries and increasingly populist. You have poor countries being left behind. I think we need to look, of course, there are always particular factors, but one thing in rich countries at any rate is technology and the inability of governments to deploy active labor market policies to correct this. So we need to really encourage government action, you know, in order to make sure that redistribution occurs. And actually there have been studies, I think there was one by Austri and et al, at the IMF in 2014, uh, that showed that redistribution does not necessarily harm growth. And that in fact, net inequality can be beneficial to growth. So all these ideas that if you try for equal growth, uh, equity or inclusive growth, you're going mm. to be, uh, you, you're going to necessarily have a lower growth, but it's not true. Mm -hmm. So I just want to say that we need to focus attention that you can be sustainable and you can be inclusive. Now, at the WTO, I just want to say that one of the things we are focused on here is indeed inclusive trade. When, when we look, we find that who are those marginalized in trade? It is what we call mismis, micro, small and medium enterprises. Uh, the owners of these enterprises, women in most cases, are not part of national, regional or global value chains. And our attempt is how can we get rules that will underpin uh, the kinds of trade that will help women, that will help micro, medium and small enterprises? How do we get information, more information into their hands so they know where to trade, how to trade, what the rules are, what the regulatory frameworks are? Those are the things we are working on at the WTO. I'm very proud to say we just finished an agreement, the services domestic regulation, regulation of domestic services, where for the first time the WTO has included a non-discriminatory rule uh, where so that men and women are treated equally in the services trade. 
those are the kinds of things we are trying to do on a macro level, rules that are yeah. beneficial to inclusive growth. And uh, we also have a sister institution, by the way, the International Trade Center, which is an offshoot of the WTO and UNCTAD, which focuses, you know, in a more direct fashion on getting resources into the hands of women entrepreneurs, into micro, medium, and small enterprises to help them get onto these uh, value chains and be part of integrated into, into trade. So I love what I heard you say, what the WTO is doing. Maybe even step away beyond that. I mean, even though you've played a key role in this space, what else do we need to do to make it more acceptable and, and, and easy for women and assimilate businesses to trade, you know, within borders, across borders and across the world? I think there's a big missing piece that people don't often talk about, and that's trade finance. Hmm. Yeah, we find that micro, medium and small enterprises and women-owned businesses in particular have very poor access to trade finance. And after all, you cannot uh, really integrate into trade if you don't have access to trade finance. You can't put in letters of credit, things like that. There's a $1.7 trillion gap now totally in trade finance. For Africa, it's $450 billion, uh, a gap totally. Sorry, $450 billion trade finance opportunity of which, mm. you know, we need $80 billion to fill the, the gap, something like that. And that's a huge amount. So one of the things about uh, trying to help women is how do we improve access to trade finance? And so, you know, we've been talking to the IFC, for example, to see what they can do. I think this time they put in about $20 billion to help plug that gap during this pandemic. This is very, very helpful, but we need to do more. So that's one of the missing links that we need to think about. How do we improve access to trade finance for, for these uh, micro, medium and small enterprises and also invest in them, you know, for them to scale up. You know, that's the other thing. When, when, when women-owned enterprises want to move from one level to the other, they often do not have, uh, they, they often don't have the finance, they don't have the expertise, they don't have the support technically to be able to do it. So these are some of the things you could think about if you really want to help women move to the next level. Got you, very clear. I think we've spoken a bit about some of the challenges that we're facing, the world is facing. What do you see as some of the opportunities uh, globally coming out of this crisis? So coming out of the, the crisis, I think there are some lessons uh, and opportunities we, we need to think about. Uh, one is I'm thinking of Africa directly, uh, that this has shown us some big gaps. The fact that we, we found out that we must put in place a pharmaceutical industry is a big opportunity to me. And I tend to look on it not as a challenge, but it's a huge opportunity for a market for 1.3 billion people, especially given the African continental free trade area. We need to now make use of that to be able to develop certain industries. I, I, I think also it has opened our eyes to the fact that we need to add value to our own products. You know, if we want to trade more, we need to add value. We cannot continue selling the same uh, raw materials you know, or, or barely processed products we used to do in the past if we want to move forward. 
So there's a huge opportunity on the continent. I think McKinsey has studied it very well. So I don't, uh, this is like preaching to the converted. But you know, the perception of risk on the continent I'm finding has not changed. The perception of risk is, is uh, far outweighs the actual risk in investing. And when you tell people that, you know, in some countries you can get a 30 plus rate of return uh, on investment, you know, they don't believe you. So I think we need to have something to help mitigate those risks. First loss kind of approaches, you know, getting the IFC, the World Bank and other multilaterals to be able to put in place instruments that can give comfort to investors in one way or the other. So yeah, to me, Africa is a huge opportunity. So let me say another one. I think from the trade front, I see three opportunities for the future. One is services trade. Services trade pre-pandemic was growing much faster than merchandise or goods trade. Uh, so there's a huge opportunity. Services have been hit by the pandemic, of course, but I expect that post-pandemic, this will be one of the ways the world economy is going to recover faster. The next is digital trade, which is also uh, helpful to services. And uh, that's a huge opportunity. E-commerce uh, is so important, becoming so important now that we are looking at rules. What rules do we need to craft? And there's a, there are negotiations going on now by 86 members to try to come up with rules that will underpin digital trade for the world economy. This would also help women. It would also help micro, medium, and small enterprises. By the way, we found through studies, and I think the Economic Commission for Africa also found uh, similar things, that one of the ways that these enterprises survived during the pandemic was through the internet mm. and through digital trade. So there's a huge opportunity there. I think the third is green trade. There's going to be a big opportunity in green green investment, green trade. That's the way the world is going. It may go faster in some areas than others, but I think focusing attention on that area will be a very big opportunity. So those are some of the exciting new areas, I think, uh, growth opportunities lie. I mean, we saw that, by the way, on the digital trade on the, Africans, on the, on the African side, where we, we found the biggest trend coming out of the crisis was acceleration of Africa's digital transformation. It had started before the crisis, but you know, it completely took off coming out of that and globally as well, as you know. Look, I know we've taken a lot of your time. Thank you so much, as always, for, for, <laughs> for, for making time with us uh, today. Thank you, Acha. Take care. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com forward slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Janet Bush. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. <laughs>